Hello and welcome to Yes Indeed Pod, a podcast about indie tabletop role-playing games where I interview creators about their games and inspirations and about the theory, process and practice of game design. My name is Mark Shepherd, and you can find me on Twitter at IamFofos and on itch.io at marksofhighwater.itch.io. This month is International Podcast Month and to celebrate I am reaching out to those bastions of the indie scene actual play podcast showrunners. This week I'm interviewing Art from Stories of a Broken Son an actual play anthology podcast about an original and totally stunning science fantasy setting. It's one of my favourite actual play podcasts out there, and I encourage you, nay, urge you, to check it out immediately. Now that's out of my head and into yours, let's talk indie. So, today we're talking to Art from Stories for a Broken Sun. Welcome to Yes Indeed. Hey, Marks. Pleasure to be here. Would you like to tell us who you are and what you do in indie tabletop role-playing games? Sure, no problem. So I'm Arp. My pronouns are here, they. Sometimes I go by Matt, but uh, I'm increasingly trying to just move my online brand to Arp. So in terms of what I do in the indie scene, I am an actual play podcaster. I have been running podcasts, well, not just podcasts, I've been running tabletop role-playing game actual plays and playing in them since 2013 and started my own podcast, Stories of a Broken Sun, three years ago, as of last Friday, actually. Wow. We always seem to forget to do anything for our anniversary, <laughs> but uh, there it went again. Congratulations. That's such a long time. <laughs> well, thank you. You know, we just keep trucking along because it's fun. Not much other reason to really do it. It's not like we're a juggernaut of the actual play world, but uh, we just have a good time. In terms of what I do, I guess I showcase how these games work and uh, how they can be used to tell a story. Yeah, absolutely. And the story that you've been telling in Stories of a Broken Sun is really compelling. Uh, it's fantastic listening. And if people out there aren't already listening to it, I like genuinely encourage you to start listening, not just like right now, but right from the beginning, because it was always really good. Well, thank you. I re-listened to the prequels the other day, and they're just, yeah, it's a great story. <laughs> if you are interested, we've just finished setting up our website. It's at uh, brokensunrpg.com, and it's got a whole section on where to start if you don't want to go back through all 98 episodes currently. And we've also got a section on summaries where you can find summaries of each season and each side story that we've done so far if you want to start at a more recent episode but still know what happened so far. Uh, I think back in season one, you were working in Fate. Was it Core? Was it Accelerated? Seems so long ago. Uh, we started with Fate Accelerated. Right. Uh, way at the very beginning, because I had a, a lot of requirements for what I needed out of a game system. And the first thing I needed was it had to be really flexible, because the way the characters were going to evolve was not going to fit into the type of traditional class or playbook that you would find in a traditional style of game, in a more popularized style of game. Yeah. Like the characters weren't going to be fighter and mage and wizard and all that. They were going to be a blacksmith's apprentice, a hat maker, a cheesemonger, and they were going to grow from there. And yeah. believe it or not, it's difficult to find a, a tabletop role-playing game system where Cheesemonger is a, is a class. Yeah, I, I can't think of any others. But yeah, that's one of the things that Fate lets you do really well. Yeah, you can be anything, try anything. So I put out a casting call for Stories of a Broken Sun back in 2017 when I decided, you know what, screw it, I'm just going to do this. I had to really psych myself up to it because I'd been doing Let's Plays on YouTube. Right. And we had, with a, an entirely different group of people, I had done Fantasy Flight Games, Star Wars, 
and the Dragon Age role-playing system, uh, Strike, and a couple of other things. And I had tried running a couple of games with little, little success because it wasn't the right group for those kind of games that I wanted to run. Yeah. Awesome people. I love them. I've known them since I was a kid, but uh, they're not into like PBTA or Forge in the Dark systems. Uh-huh. Anyway, fast forward to 2017, said, I'm just going to do this. I put out a casting call. I said, I'm looking for people who want to come and that you can commit one six-hour session every month on a Sunday. That was what we originally started with back in season one. We've moved away from that because we just can't do it anymore. (laughs) Also because uh, the systems we're using in season two are faster. The speed of the system is another thing that uh, I had to get into. But anyway, I said, I want people who are new to tabletop games to come and do this with me. And I got more applications than I was expecting. Right. (laughs) That's cool. Yeah. I thought I would get like two or three. I ended up with 30 or so people who were interested. Oh, wow. And so I went through that list. I looked at their applications. I made a form because I said I'm specifically looking for people from marginalized groups and people who are new to tabletop role-playing games because I felt it was important to do something inclusive and to have voices other than, at the time, a cishet white guy on the show. Right, yeah. And yeah, that was how I found the amazing players that I started with. Right. We had uh, Velvet, OG Brown Sugar, Mike, he's at Good Sir Blood, and Keekers at Be a Space Cat. And then we picked up Jason, a friend of mine from the real world in chapter one. Yeah, all good folks. They're all fairly new to tabletop role-playing games. That does not come across at all in the episodes. They just seem like seasoned players, very good storytellers. If there's a bit of awkwardness with rules understanding, I kind of always just grok that with fate to people aren't necessarily that familiar with that style of role-playing game. So I spent a lot of time struggling with it as well, but uh, we cut out some of that and some of that we just left in so that people could see, you know, we're not perfect. Some podcasts have no table talk, and I don't enjoy that. (laughs) And some podcasts are, oh, there's a lot of fumbling around trying to work out what dice we need to roll in the background, and also that's not that interesting. Striking the balance is really good. Yeah. In season two, you switch to Scum and Villainy, which is Forge in the Dark spin-off. People describe it as Star Wars with the serial numbers filed off. That's doing it a bit of a disservice because it's kind of more than that. (laughs) Do you want to give us the reasons for changing up to Scum and Villainy? A lot of different reasons. Um, fate is wide open. Like, you can do anything in Fate. You can be anyone in Fate. And that has strengths and weaknesses. Fate also has a lot of moving parts. And uh, I have a bit of brain damage, which makes it difficult for me to keep track of fine details and causes issues with my long-term memory. So I, as we were going through Season 1, became increasingly stressed with trying to juggle all the things and remembering I need to compel these aspects. I need to remember to pull this on and make sure that they interact with the setting aspects and this and that and the other. And every character has to be fully fleshed out and built the same way as the player characters is a lot of work and it was just as it turned out too much for me to juggle and it was causing me more stress than it was worth at the time it's a a great system i'll never run it again i do love (laughs) fate i couldn't have done what i did without it it's interesting to say that you think that uh fate has a lot of moving parts because for me the forged in the dark systems especially the gm side of things are very intricate I think that maybe it's not. I haven't played them for long enough um, to kind of get into the swing of it. But yeah, it's it, it always seemed like a bit of a barrier to entry for me as a GM that there was a lot to do um, in Blades in the Dark. 
What I find with uh, Forge in the Dark games is that they do have a lot of components to them, like, you know, clocks and determining what the position and effect are going to be for each action and keeping track of the engagement roles and things along those lines. But it's also, for me, easier to grasp how those things work because each component system in a well-designed Forge in the Dark game informs every other part of it. And they're connected in ways that make sense. So with Fate, for example, it has a lot of different moving parts and they're not always fully enmeshed with each other thematically because the game doesn't have a theme on its own. It's a toolbox. Right, yeah. Whereas a Forge in the Dark game, the well-designed ones always have a focus that they want, a theme that they're aiming towards. Yeah. And the mechanics inform that yeah so they're all tied together in a way that makes sense to me like i'm an english major i'm an english teacher so a thematic connection like that works for me yeah absolutely and that's the sort of theme that i've just been talking about with reef and the magpies podcast that blades in the dark kind of looks at um a lot of issues of social justice and class divide and kind of class warfare and praxis and that's interesting that mm-hmm. almost every element is kind of focused on bringing out those kind of storylines of desperation and recklessness yeah how do you feel that scum and villainy what what kind of themes does that portray for you so scum and villainy is largely a game about being a scoundrel but being a scoundrel with a heart of gold <laughs> right it's han solo <laughs> the role-playing game right in a lot of ways, you can do Han Solo, you can do like uh, Outlaw Star, that kind of stuff in there, and Cowboy Bebop even. Like your characters in Scum and Villainy are not necessarily, they're not heroes, but they might still be in some ways good people, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like not all of the characters that we have on the show in season two are good people. Looking at Augustus there, primarily. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Who is unapologetically a bad person and Velvet is amazing with that now. I feel like it's less desperate than Bleeds in the Dark, the basis that it's built upon, because it has things like your gambits, which are, you can just get an extra die. You start off your mission, you've got two to three gambits, depending on your crew setup, and you just use those for moments when your scoundrel would be luckier, and you add an extra die from that. Yeah, that's a good mechanic. Sorry, it's a sort of subsystem add-on to Bleeds in the Dark, which actually i think really improves gameplay as you said it makes yeah. it a lot less oh, i have to rely on my own resources and just like i can rely on everyone else to let me use their resources as well so it's neat mm-hmm. and it's uh, the healing system is a little, uh, little less punishing than in the in the base game of blades so it feels less like you are at the bottom of the barrel like you do are in blades yeah and more like you are struggling against an unjust system but you've got a little bit more resources a little bit more luck on your side yeah like again, we were talking about this before, but because you've got all of these things that allow you to take risks and sort of mechanically encourage you risk taking, that makes for a very exciting storyline. It makes for a storyline where people are compelled to listen along. Whereas I feel like with certainly some of the fifth edition podcasts that I've listened to in the past, not necessarily that kind of compelling because you know that people are pretty much going to prevail all the time and it's not that interesting. I think the issue for me there is... Um... In D20 systems like that, there tends to be a binary pass-fail. That's not interesting to me personally as a storyteller. Right, yeah. I know that there are 5e, Pathfinder, whatever games out there that, that use a binary system and are able to still string together a great narrative with it. But um, to me, a lot of the times they're fighting against the system they're using rather than taking advantage of the system they're using in order to enhance their narrative. I'm not saying this to speak down about system choice. I personally don't like 5e and 
Pathfinder D20 games like that for the reasons that I've stated here and also for reasons related to the people who make them. But I, f- I find that often I'm listening to this and I'm listening to, oh, well, you, you rolled your dice and you missed. And I'm like, well, that's, I mean, we've just stopped now and they have to throw something together to move that on to a different path. And that's fine. That's good storytelling. Right. But if you're using a system that actually has things in place for failing forward, yeah, then it it makes your job easier as a showrunner. Yeah, it does. Like another thing is that it kind of gives you tools that allow you to tell interesting story beats that are outside of combat. Yeah, that are more focused on things that maybe your characters are good at, and maybe your players are good at talking about. And actually, for me, that is kind of more interesting than a bit of fluffy narrative punctuated by quite tedious, drawn out combats. But that's just me. I mean, I kind of have specific requirements as well when I'm listening to a podcast. I'm not that interested in the combat side of things or the mechanics side of things. I just want a compelling story. Yeah. So like, if you go back to the beginning of our show, back when we were still starting out, because I came up through different types, more traditional styles of role-playing game systems, um, I actually didn't play a tabletop role-playing game in the traditional way until 2012. That was the first time, and it was Fantasy Flight Star Wars. I had not played sit-down roll dice games with other people before that. Oh, and um, Edge of the Empire was your first. It was, yeah. That's a system to me that feels kind of reasonably well narrative-focused. I do not enjoy the dice system, but <laughs> I think that's a personal choice. I kind of see yeah. why the dice system might be good, but for me it doesn't flow that well compared to Fate. Powered by the Apocalypse. The whole Genesis Fantasy Flight game system has a lot of really cool aspects. I think just the issue with the dice is that you will often, not just sometimes, you will often end up with a roll where you have like five, six advantages, but zero successes. When that's the most common type of roll, it, it makes it difficult to constantly be coming up with a new, well, okay, what what useful thing happens that's not succeeding? Yeah. Like, I have my issues with that, and I know you can pass stuff around, and we got pretty good at that when we were doing it on the podcast. Also, I, I occasionally I'm a guest character on Flight Risk, uh, a different podcast that uses Star Wars with Dwayne Feenstra and um, Velda, one of the players from my show, is also a character on that, part of the regular cast. So I, I went on there. I've guessed it a few times as Quagoras, a, a large bird, and it's still fun to play, but I, I find the system kind of frustrating yeah what i was going to say is when i started doing the podcast i was still in the mindset of more traditional games like the pass fail type thing yeah and i struggled to be more flexible in how i approached situations and being willing to just say that's enough let's move on let's move away from this and i think the joke that uh the, the uh, other players and I often come back to is climbing over the wall in the prologue. There was no reason for it to take so long. <laughs> There's so many roles for us to just climb over the wall on the outside of their, of their town. Yeah. But I was stuck in that mindset of, well, you, they, they have to get to that number of successes that I had written down to get over the wall. And they just kept not succeeding. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, well, we can't do anything until they get outside the wall. Yeah. So I think, well, I know, since then, I, I have definitely grown as a game runner past that point where I'm, I'm more willing to say, this isn't working. We're just going to take a different route. Let's cut that or let's uh, try something else. And that helps 
move things along. Yeah, and I think um, that, you know, Forged in the Dark gives you a lot of tools to do that because a lot of the, you know, the labor of it is uh, some of it's given over to your players as well. You know, it's not on you to prepare an intricate set of encounters for them. It's on you to kind of present interesting situations that they can riff on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like the system really leans well into that and it's it's... It's just a very good for the format, you know. It's very good for actual play. Yeah, and like I don't have a lot of free time. I've got two kids, as I'm sure you can hear, <laughs> and you know, a full time job as a teacher, and that's a lot of work outside of the the school building as well. Yeah. So like I have very little free time, and I've carved out some of it to make a podcast. And for season two, one of my big requirements was I need a system that doesn't require me to spend hours doing prep, and that's forge in the dark like i have to do very little to prepare for a session i know that i want this general plot beat to happen i want to present this situation and i want to see where we go from there yeah that's exactly where the system thrives like if you you can't have a you can't have a a sacred cow when you are running forge in the dark so you, you can't be thinking we must hit this plot point we must get to this point in the story this has to happen because right, it's yeah. all going to be up to where the players go and what happens with the dice. Yeah. So you got to be flexible. You have to improvise. And the system rewards that and thrives in that space. Yeah. Forged in the Dark as well has a kind of episodic structure, which is just very, very well aligned to how you would want to produce a drama series, right? Which works really well in the audio format as well. So you have a score followed by downtime, followed by a score followed by downtime. And like that system just lends itself very well to <laughs> being played yeah, the the downtime and the free play are really key to giving characters room to grow yeah like you were mentioning having space for things outside of combat and that's the downtime system is really good for that yeah it, it's nice that it's also flexible in that if your table's not really interested in that you don't have to you can just roll the dice for your downtime actions and that's it yeah and sometimes even on the show we're like we just we don't we're not feeling it right now We'll just roll some dice for downtime. Yeah, what John Harper has done is not only created a system that everybody enjoys playing, but it also like lends itself very well to self-publicization <laughs> because it works really well on uh, Let's Plays and Actual Play podcasts. You've played a few other systems as your kind of between-season side stories and kind of mid-season side stories as well. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts on what constitutes... Other good systems for actual play podcasts? Oh, yeah. I mean, for me, the the sweet spot here is Forge in the Dark and the things that are building out of it. Like uh, for season three, we're using Songs for the Dusk. I'm not sure if you've heard of that. Um, I had not heard of it uh, before. I can't even think who it's by. Yeah. Why don't you tell us a little bit about it? Uh, yeah. Songs for the Dusk is a Forge in the Dark game. It's by Kavita Paduri and Quinn Blaylor. And actually, I ran a game of it with where replayed. Uh, for IPM. You'll be able to to hear that on September 29th, I believe. Okay. Uh, that was my first time running the game, but I was like, I, I offered at IPM, I said, I'd like to run this game. It's awesome. It's my new favorite game. Uh, well, it's neck and neck with Monster Care Squad. I like them both for very different reasons. And uh, <laughs> we also ran Monster Care Squad uh, with preview rules that uh, Liam was kind enough to send us. And uh, our session of it is up on their Kickstarter page. Oh, it's, it's a beautiful story. We'll get to that one. Yeah. Songs for the Dusk is this hopeful game about exploration, but it's designed in such a way to avoid the colonialist tropes that you run into with a lot of exploration games. 
Right, yeah. So the focus in Songs for the Dusk is building up your community and exploring the past of your people and solving local problems and resisting imperialism. Right. It, it runs the gamut of all the different things that are the focus of season three, which is the thing that I've wanted to get to since we started this podcast. Yeah. Season one is based on the outline to a novel that I started writing in the year 2000. And I went back last month and looked at the notes and the outline and the completed portions of that novel and how wildly different where we are now is from what I ever expected. And that's up, you know, that's on my players and the amazing way that we've been able to improvise and use these systems to push the story in different ways. Yeah. But what I've always wanted to get to on the podcast is season three. So I'm really excited for that. And the system, finding songs for the dusk was just like kismet. It's basically the perfect system to run the kind of story I want to tell there. Right. A story about avoiding colonialism, resisting imperial powers, and building communities, bonding with your land. It's really important to me. So the system is designed for that. That sounds pretty awesome. Yeah. It is. It's, uh, I'm, I know there's a big, huge revision coming out, version uh, 0 0.5. It's coming out sometime this fall, and I am so excited to see what they do with that because the system's already so cool yeah. and so beautifully designed. Yeah, that sounds wonderful. Um, I genuinely can't wait for season three then. That sounds like it's going to be a real blast. Uh, how far off is that? <laughs> um, well, we're almost done season two. We're recording probably our third to last session on Monday, tomorrow. Okay. So the actual season probably won't be out until late fall early winter for right. season three yeah but yeah we're finishing that up then we have an interseason game we're going to be using i'm sorry did you say street magic oh fantastic and then we'll be moving into songs for the dusk and i've uh, roped in a bunch of people from the podcasting community to come on as guests during that fantastic. season as well yeah so so cool. really looking forward to it well yeah me too that sounds like it's going to be really good so i encourage everyone to check out stories of broken sun like immediately but obviously that's going to be very in line with a lot of the things that we talk about on yes indeed um so yeah please go away and check that out yeah we were mentioning monster care squad there as well do you want to tell us a little bit about why that worked so well for ap yeah uh, so monster care squad is designed to be played in three segments so you have the diagnosis segment the synthesis segment and then the symbiosis segment your listeners have probably already heard your interview with liam but quick overview in Monster Care Squad, there are these giant monsters who live in harmony with humans and other creatures. It's a symbiotic relationship that humans and these monsters have. Yeah. There is no combat in the game at all. There's no way to get hurt. There's no way to hurt people, which is a really powerful design decision because it is a game about helping. So in it, there's this environmental poison that is affecting the monsters and giving them wounds and causing them to rampage. And you play basically super vets they're called care specialists and your job is to go to where the monster is find out what local problems you can help solve and what local treatments are likely to work on the wounds the monster has because the monster is tied to the land where it lives so it must be treated with things from the land where it lives so the diagnosis phase yeah you go out there you figure out what's wrong then synthesis phase you figure out how do i treat it yeah. And then the symbiosis phase, you go, you climb up on that giant monster and you treat those wounds. And like, based on what you said about um, Songs for the Dusk as well, I can see why that's, a, that's something that really appeals to you. 
Um, mm-hmm. It is a game that really appeals to me as well, and I was very excited when uh, Liam came on the show to talk about it. So, yeah. Yeah, highly recommended. But because it's got that built-in episodic way of design, it works so well for an actual play episodic show. Yeah. Your one episode is going to be the diagnosis, the next one's going to be synthesis, and then it's going to be symbiosis. And then you move on to the next monster. Yeah. And that miniseries that you ran, it was just really nice. It was very, very cool to listen to. I really enjoyed it. Thanks. Yeah, your players really leaned into it as well. Um, The voices were very good. (laughs) Those characters will be back in season three for sure. Excellent, because they were cool. (laughs) Yeah, we're going to be, we'll be using both Songs for the Dusk and Monster Care Squad for different stories in season three. Oh, wow. That sounds really awesome then. It is just genuinely amazing when you can find two systems that work to tell the stories that you want to tell. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, brilliant. I'm looking forward to it a lot. Yeah, we also used Monster of the Week and City of Mist on the show. I can just talk briefly about them. Uh, City of Mist is my favorite game that I'll never run again. It's uh, got, again, tons of moving pieces, and it's brilliant for telling the story that it tells. I would highly recommend everybody read through the very thick book and... (sighs) Give it a give it a try. Play it at least once. I had a blast trying to run a mystery, a supernatural mystery in it. Yeah. And that's what it's designed for. It does that really, really well. Yeah. But it was tough because, again, I was trying to keep track of a lot of different things that I had to do in parallel as the game runner. I mean, I enjoyed that series, but I found it harder to listen to than other of your side stories yeah. because it's kind of dense mechanically. It's very mechanics heavy. Yeah. I'm still I'm still proud of it, but it was it was really a struggle for me to do that. Yeah. And it helped me realize again that it's not the kind of system I can do on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Uh, Monster of the Week. I had a good time with that one. It's uh, you know, powered by the apocalypse. Uh, it's got fun playbooks and a good way to generate a monster and a set endpoint for your conflict with the monster. Yeah. You figure out what's going on with the monster, you hunt them down, and you decide where you're going to have your showdown, and then you do the showdown. So, uh, again, well-designed for an episodic approach. Yeah. If you look at, uh, let's see, Unexplored Places is a podcast that used Monster of the Week for their first season, I think. Yeah. And uh, I think they're on Scum and Villainy as well now for their new season, Tango Sector. Oh, cool. So their run of Monster of the Week was brilliant, and I listened to it a lot while I was working on the Splinter Beast of Sector 5 so that I could try and figure out how the heck to run this system. Yeah, I listened to the crit show as well which they've been running monster of the week from the start and uh, so that's a good actual play they're very they're very good at what they do very focused now mm-hmm. it's a good system uh nice and episodic supernatural the role-playing game yeah <laughs> uh like with scum and villainy i had to do significant amount of hacking to get it to do what i wanted it to do in my setting yeah it is extra work to try and fit in a modern day monster hunting story into a science fantasy setting like on the habitat uh, in the, in in the show. Yeah. So that was, you know, fighting a little bit against the system, but it still ended up working out pretty well, I think. Yeah. Although that was I think the side story the most plagued with issues because as we were going through the session, more and more players had to leave because of one emergency or another. Oh no. <laughs> so by the time we got to the conflict with the monster, only Trudy and Pat were left. Oh, I'm not sure it really <laughs> so, kind of... <laughs> I didn't really twig it on the way, so I guess it must have been reasonably slickly edited. We did our best to try and make it as organic as possible as, oh, well, this person has to leave now, that person has to leave now. It's like, yeah. We'll figure out why their character is gone. Yeah. 
You were kind of touched on there about hacking a system a little bit to get it to tell the story that you want to do. I mean, is that always a lot of work to do or do you kind of just have to do it once? It's upfront labor. Like uh, with Scum and Villainy, I had to set up the new factions. We had to do a little bit of hacking to make it fit in an enclosed system rather than a space system. And uh, we had to fiddle around a bit with what a tune would mean on the sun. Yeah. Uh, But it wasn't too much work. And it's going to be even less work hacking Songs for the Dusk because it's just going to be the factions that I have to put in. Cool. Everything else is almost tailor-made for what we're doing. So that's a bit of luck. Oh, that's fantastic. Okay, well... Good luck with that, because it does genuinely sound like the kind of thing that I'm very into. I pretty much can't wait. So, Arp, do you want to tell us where we can find you and Stories for a Broken Sun on the internet? Yeah, of course. Uh, So you can follow me at Ycaliber. That's W-H-Y Caliber, like Excalibur, but Y instead. You can follow the show at Broken Sun RPG. And our website is brokensunrpg.com. I'm pretty proud of it. You should check out the site. It's got everything you could ever want to know about the show on it. Excellent. So I guess all that remains is for me to say thank you very much again for coming on Yes Indeed and talking to us about Stories for a Broken Sun, uh, which, as I've already said, is pretty much one of my favorite actual play podcasts out there. And I'm always recommending it to pretty much anybody who asks. Well, thank you. (laughs) You appreciate the support. Yeah. Thank you very much again. And goodbye for now. Thank you. Have a great day. Thanks for listening. And thanks again to Art for the interview. As always, you can find all of the links in the episode description. In the next bonus episode, I'll be talking to Ree from the Magpies, an actual play podcast using Blades in the Dark system. It's an all-woman cast and hits so many social justice issues that it'll make your head literally spin. It's another one of my favourites, so please check out that episode in about two weeks. If you enjoy Yes Indeed Pod, please rate and review the show wherever you find your podcasts, or consider donating through the Ko-Fi page at ko-fi.com slash yesindeedpod. Of course, you can always reach out to me through Twitter at IamFofos. That's I-A-M-P-H-O-P-H-O-S. I'd love dearly to hear from you. Lastly, music credits. All music this week is from As I Figure by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com and BillMusic.io. Thanks, Kevin. Until next time, remember... Does Indy need you? Yes, indeed. Indeed.